Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page and myself, independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we're in conversation with our fifth special guest, discussing hyper-competition for that scarcest of commodities we call talent. More in a moment. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. I'm Richard Kramer, and with me is Will Page. Hey, Will. Great to be here, Richard. And we have our fifth guest today, Joe Kessler. Hi, I'm uh, the global head of UTIQ, which is a division of the United Talent Agency, one of the three largest talent agencies in the world. And the UTIQ exists to provide research, analysis, and digital strategy to our clients in all areas of talent, ranging from film to television to sports to video games and digital influencers and the rest. So, Joe, on Bubble Trouble, we've been discussing hyper-competition, which is this concept Mm -hmm. that you have an excess of supply, so much supply that when quantity goes up, the quality of the product can go down. And we've covered this in ads, which last typically four seconds, music, which lasts no more than four minutes, podcasts, which last 40 minutes, and books, which in my case take four months to finish. But now we flip it and we turn to talent. And I'll go back to being in LA with you around the time of the Oscars, actually, where I sat in the UT offices in California, which I believe were the former offices of Penthouse. So when we sat in those sofas, those sofas have seen some history. But you gave me a stat, which I never forgot. And I always want to get you on the show. So thanks for coming. But you told me that in the previous year, there's 493 original scripted dramas produced from mm-hmm. Hollywood alone, in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you said 493, Will, that's more than one a day. Talk to me about just the scale of supply in your world of talent and drama production. Yeah, so first of all, it was Playboy, not Penthouse, who occupied our former offices in, in Los Angeles. We're really in the golden age of content right now in the sense that the value uh, of creators who can develop stories and can produce stories through whatever means possible, that could be anything from a 15-second TikTok to a 12-episode, hour-long documentary series on Netflix, the demand for the talent who can bring audiences to those platforms is greater than it has ever been before. And we're seeing that reflected in the immense fees that are being paid to artists with these platforms to develop programs, even talent who are in previously arcane areas like, for instance, documentary production or artists who have had maybe one hit on a network or on a cable channel being paid significant sums of money to develop programming for all of these new channels. 
And we're also seeing it reflected in the disaggregation of the audience and how consumers are consuming all of this content. We have more channels and platforms available to us than we've ever had before. And as a result of that, the marketplace has become increasingly disaggregated. And if I can just push one more question there before I hand over to Richard, what you're saying there yep. is there's an increase in supply yes. and an increase in price, which initially sounds like you're defining the laws of economic gravity, but is that simply because this thing called talent is so scarce? Well, I guess it depends on how you define talent, right? Uh, you and I had a discussion not long ago where you quoted for me the number of, of new artists who came onto Spotify during a particular week, and it was obviously more than the world, even that one week, it was more than the world could consume at any given time. Mm -hmm. So I guess it depends how you define an artist. Uh, I think at the end of the day, what happens is, is that it, the signals that drive commerce to this content become increasingly more important than just the creative output for its own sake. And I, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing for the world, but it's, it's definitely what we see happening. Uh, and it's being accelerated dramatically by this new generation of buyers in the market from companies like Spotify, Netflix, Amazon, as opposed to the traditional entertainment companies where most of the time, the choice of which talent you would associate your, yourself with was based upon personal taste and human experience, as opposed to just what the signals are telling you would lead to economic success. I definitely want to pick up on several things there, not least for you, your role as an agent. But, you know, we've seen live streaming, we've seen influencers. Who's not an influencer these days? And I guess what we're trying to parse out in this concept of hyper-competition is how far can it go? Is if everybody's an influencer, if everybody from the humblest kid in their bedroom to the highest uh, paid stars all feels they have that X factor called talent, how do you get them to stand out? What's your role in thinking about the life cycle of that talent, of getting them really to the, to the gate that everybody, the promised land, everybody was trying to get to in Hollywood for years and years? Right. So first of all, I'm personally not an agent, but obviously the role that I play at the agency has a lot to do with what you're asking because increasingly we're using data to help us inform those decisions and inform those, those choices. But I think what it speaks to is the talent that's really going to be dominant going forward in the minds of consumers and ultimately financially are those who are able to build direct communications and direct relationships with their audiences, monetize those audiences, and be able to surface their art across as many different domains as possible. And I think the artists that we tend to have the most success with as we've sort of leaned into this, this innovative spirit to try to make sure that we're on top of the next trend that occurs. So we've been, I'm happy to say, we've been one of the first into representing digital talent or digital influencers. We've been one of the first into representing podcasters. We've been the first to get into the NFT space with digital assets and things along those lines. First and foremost, it's having the permission to innovate and constantly go after these new areas of exploration for artists and, and then being able to share with our artists and be able to guide our artists through those areas. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, it's up to the artists and their teams to understand how can they surface their stories how can they surface their art uh, across as many of these different platforms as possible and have their audience follow them wherever they go? And I think that's going to be sort of the key principle of how talent emerges over time. So, so four or five years ago, we had a lot of thoughtful economists at leading universities write papers on Lady Gaga and Gaganomics. And this was the 
maybe the, that first instance where you had an artist which reached out directly and created her own digital fan club of little monsters. And I guess one of the questions I've got is, how many Lady Gagas can the market support? So I think we're at the tip of the iceberg, and I think that's exemplified by the number of new successful startups who are playing in this space we like to call the creator economy. I imagine you've used this term before, where that did not exist even five years ago. So when mm -hmm. Lady Gaga took that path, she didn't have a cameo. She didn't have a community. She didn't have a Patreon. All, all of these companies and hundreds more like that are emerging to service the needs and wow. help our artists bring their work to more people more directly with deeper engagement. And I don't know how many, but I know that we're at the very tip of the iceberg now. We actually just completed a study that we're going to release next week. And I'll give your listeners a bit of a scoop uh, that we're going to release at Advertising Week next week. We just did a consumer study on the creator economy. And we've estimated that it's currently somewhere around a nine or $10 billion market. And we foresee in the next couple of years, that market growing to 18 million or more based upon what consumers are telling us, the actions that they're taking on these platforms, how they're interacting with uh, their favorite artists and, and the talent that they follow and what they intend to do going forward. Mm. Right now, there's about a people who are aware of creator economy platforms, about 40% of them are active on those platforms. And we expect that number based on the research we've done to rise to about uh, 70 to 75%. Yeah, and you mentioned Patreon. It's interesting to think that Patreon, after seven years of existence since being founded in San Francisco, announced $2 billion have been paid through to creators, net, net, paid through. It took the global recorded music industry 18 years to do that with streaming. And that's an entire global business across many platforms. This is one startup in San Francisco, $2 billion. Right. So, And I think, it's a, I think it's a logical transition, right? Because you went from the traditional legacy media where talent was at the knee of executives who were deciding what content was getting out to the public, right? Then you sort of transitioned into this social media age where talent was able to now communicate directly with their clients, but not necessarily proper their art to their customers, to their fans, but they weren't, they don't really own those audiences, right? They rent those audiences. We saw this with Vine. When Vine went away, your audience goes away. If Twitter decides to do a purge on accounts, on followers, you're going to lose those followers. You're at the behest of those platforms. With these platforms like the communities and the Patreons, the artists and their teams own those phone numbers. They own those emails. And that gives them tremendous leverage to be able to monetize and, and maximize their relationships with those audiences. And by the way, the audiences want that. They want more exclusive content. They want specialized merch. They want to be rewarded for their loyalty to their to the artists that they follow. And that's something that they haven't really been able to do prior to this. Fascinating, Joe. Joe, you're kind of blowing away a lot of stereotypes about Call My Agent, which is it's not about those very few blockbusters <laughs> at the top. You're working with everybody down in the long tail as well. I would say the market is becoming increasingly bifurcated. So you've got this marketplace of Avengers movies, right? Which each one of them breeds its own industry pretty much, or the DC movies and the big tentpole films and massive television franchises like a Squid Game that comes from South Korea and is now the largest, uh, most viewed program ever in the history of Netflix. So you still have this sort of mass market part of the equation, but then you also have this long tail. What's going away is the middle market, right? Pretty much. Uh, like a reflection of the global economy itself. And you're seeing the opportunity for artists to take advantage of new technologies, new platforms of innovation, being able to get into the mainstream and make a living or better utilizing these tools. And then you have this sort of high end, we're going to pay $250 million to bankroll a movie that we know is going to yield a billion dollars 
and that ecosystem still exists. The long tail still exists. What's happening is the middle class is getting squeezed out. What's getting squeezed out is, you know, the $25 million budget romantic comedy that would do 50 million at, at the box office or 75 million at the box office. Those properties and or a, a television show that doesn't have a, either a major star or a major creator or a major producer doesn't get a primetime slot on a network. Those are typically going to streaming and they're, they're, they're being forced to have their audiences discover them as opposed to having the having it the other way around. Joe, before we go to the break, I want to squeeze one quick question in there. Yeah. Um, we'll hit this bifurcation issue in part two, but just very quickly, I've got this line in my book, Tars and Economics, which says, if intellectual property, you have a fulcrum, which is a careful balance between stimulation on one hand and cannibalization on the other. Mm-hmm. So without a taste, too few take a bite. Uh, too many free tastes and few will need to pay to you. And yes. your job is to demand fees. In this weird world, we have this overindulgence of supply of content, yep. the scarcity of talent, this increasing price, the economics completely whacked out of shape here. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel tempted not to demand a fee, to forego the money to get exposure, to stand above the crowd? Or is your job mm-hmm. still to make right. sure checks are handed over? Right. I'm sure artists have done that. I would say that would be, go against the principles of what a talent agency stands for, and what it's about. And I, I've not seen or heard an instance of that taking place yet. It's a very interesting thought. You know, I think during covid in particular, with our in our live touring business, we saw instances of artists going to significant lengths for which they might have been previously paid a lot more money to continue and maintain that connection with their audiences when they couldn't necessarily go out on tour. That would be musical artists and comedy, comedy artists and things along those lines. But I think that's starting to sort of shift back the other way. Now, will it ever shift back all the way? Probably not. And I think artists will go to, particularly if they feel like there's an opportunity for them to have gained some long-term advantage by giving up some of the income in the short term. I, I think that's a, a viable idea. I just haven't seen it. Maybe as we move towards the wrap-up, I do want to reflect as we get to part two on the notion that there are those 65,000 songs uploaded onto Spotify every day, and all those yep. people are nipping at the heels of those established artists. And I'm also really curious, and I want to get to cover this in the second part, this $50 billion of content spend a year between 15 yep. or 17 billion from Netflix and 10 or 12 from yep. Disney and the Amazons and Apples and all the others. How is that going to produce the long-term catalog value that mm-hmm. is needed to justify that spend? And how do you see that long-term value when there's so much more being created all the time in this new economy you've laid out? So maybe we can move to that in part two. With that, let's wrap up part one of Bubble Trouble and, and move on to the next set of questions with our guest, Joe Kessler. Okay, welcome back to the second half of Bubble Trouble, talking about the war for talent with Joe Kessler and myself and Will Page. Joe's just laid out a very attractive vision of this new creator economy, but obviously both fools and, and, and geniuses rush in here. And I guess we're, I'm wondering, as we see so many new entrants in this creator economy, as we're enabling so many more people to participate in this talent war, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? What signals do you look for that are going to make one or another particular star rise to the top? 
Well, and look, at the end of the day, talent is talent, right? Either the large enough numbers of people are going to be attracted to the work that someone does or they're not. Someone's going to be satisfied with the amount of revenue they can generate or not. And at the end of the day, uh, either the economics or the will of the artist are going to determine the success or failure of those artists. I do think, though, that there are opportunities. And again, I still would contend that we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg. You know, we have a theory that we talk about in, in IQ, at UTIQ, called corridors of engagement, C-O-R-R-I-D-O-R, like hallways of engagement. Yep. And with all yep. this audience, this aggregation have come these sort of subcultures of fans who are interested in particular things. And those subcultures can get pretty mass. We last year signed a gaming influencer on YouTube who has 24 million followers. 24 million. Yeah, 24 million. But here's the interesting thing. <laughs> One of the things we found out about this gamer was that in our research was that if you weren't one of the 24 million followers, you had absolutely no idea who that person was, right? Yeah. So he can go much deeper with those 24 million than say 1992 Will Smith could go with the probably 100 million, 200, 300 million people who are fans of, of Will Smith, whatever. Basically everybody on the globe knew who Will Smith was or who knew who Tom Cruise was and would go to see their movies when they were released or would read about them in the paper but they were limited as to how they could access that audience. And they were essentially screened by uh, and filtered by the studios and the networks. What this right. gamer has now is an opportunity to take that 24 million and develop an intense relationship with them. In fact, to the point where this gamer's audience grew even further because when he selected the music that he was using to provide the background for his videos, and the music for the background, the mixes that he was making for the mu background for his videos, he used that the momentum from that to develop his own label to publish the, uh, the music that he was creating. And ultimately, other artists were creating similar music. So that represents a kind of independent ecosystem that did not exist 10 years ago. And again, I think in that regard, we're still at the sort of beginning stages. Now, if you're, you'd be asking yourself, okay, so who's paying the price for this, right? There's limited attention span. And by the way, the attention span is going up and up and up. And younger people are more facile in being able to consume more different types of content in shorter periods of time than most of us who are older. So that's one factor. But the other factor is there are entities that are paying the price. I'm not breaking news by telling you it was released last week that the entirety of the cable television universe in the United States from last year to this year shrunk by 19%. And what's holding that up for now, and I think it's something we need to keep an eye on, is the fact that because there are so few opportunities, particularly for brand marketers who are associating themselves with this content, let's be real, a lot of the momentum for the promotion of these artists is coming from brand marketers who are interacting with consumers through these artists, right? Either on their TV shows or through their movies, music tours or through, you know, sponsoring a YouTube channel. That It's so difficult for them to maintain or to, to reach mass audiences that the value of the audiences are actually going up even though the size of the audience is going down. So if you're like a cable TV reality show and you can get, you know, 3 million eyeballs a week, that becomes rarer and rarer, even though that same audience was probably 5 million a year and a half ago. But the, the opportunity to get to that mass audience is so scarce that the prices that marketers are paying to sponsor this program, being engaged in those programs is going up. And also, again, the opportunity to relate directly to the talent that they follow is driving consumers to open their wallets as well. 
Joe, I want to move this conversation around a little bit. My apologies in advance for this, but going back to something you said before the break about the bifurcation, I'm really, really hungry to pose this question to you, which is, in my book, I talk about consumers wanting the thrill of a bargain, the thrill of a luxury, but they couldn't care about what's in the middle. I see it with music streaming. You know, mm-hmm. ten pound a mm-hmm. month is exactly what Rhapsody charged in two thousand two. So yep. twenty years at the same price point. That's a bargain. The yep. same consumer paying a ten pound a month are the ones who are paying twenty five dollars for a gatefold vinyl record a month as well. Uh-huh. And by the way, the majority of those consumers don't even have a record player. I've seen the data. So we have a strange situation where this thrill of a bargain, thrill of a luxury, it's the same consumer, the same consumer who's going to fly JetBlue to America for £300 from Gatwick Airport, which, by the way, is getting five-star reviews, is also using Singapore Airlines to get to Southeast Asia. Bargains, luxuries, British Airways, the world's 19th favourite airline, 19th, by the way, is stuck in the middle and in deep trouble. When you talked about the bifurcation of the market, is it the same consumer that's going to the blockbuster at the head as well as this niche artist, this gaming streamer down in the tail? That's a great question. I'm not sure that there's a simple answer for that, but I think there are characteristics of this marketplace that speak to that. So you think about, and let's just take the, the live touring arena. We have bands and big comedians filling arenas of you know from 15 to 50,000 people. And the increase in the amount of exclusive tickets that are being made available to them. It might be a meet and greet with the artist. It, it might be special seating. It might be some kind of an event that takes place before or after. It's that luxury piece that you're talking about. On the other hand, you've got the consumer who would probably be more willing to pay that artist $20 to get a personalized text message that they could send to their friend on their birthday than that pay $500 for the exclusive experience to see them perform live. I do think that there are characteristics in various aspects of the talent marketplace that reflect that. I think it's probably too soon to solidify that analogy you made with air travel. And I would say that actually is going even beyond, I would say JetBlue isn't even the, isn't even the ultimate bargain. I'm not sure Singapore is the ultimate luxury. You may be familiar with this group called PS Salon that is putting sites up in airports. They've just established an LAX where they are creating like a special terminal for people who are willing to pay $700 a pop so that you can go through without going through TSA, without dealing with the baggage. And then they take you in a little Mercedes van to your plane. So I think those ends are stretching. Uh, The luxury is becoming more luxury and the bargains are becoming even more bargain. You could think about like an Amazon providing Amazon video to everybody who has an Amazon Prime account. So all those people who are on Amazon who are using Amazon for, for video consumption, in their minds, it's kind of free, right? It's like, I'm not even paying for that. I, I, I'm still buying my supplies on Amazon. I'm going to pay my fee for Prime. I just get that video kind of for free. And so I, I do think that there are elements of what you're describing in this marketplace. I just think it's too soon to have the kinds of extremes that we're talking about, for instance, like with travel. Joe, we need to get you over to Europe to fly Ryanair. <laughs> which uh, Michael O'Leary, the, the CEO of Ryanair, was really thinking to charge people to go to the toilets on Ryanair, if you want to understand the opposite end of the market from LAX. Well, also, Michael O'Leary would not allow people to charge their phones at work, but when he, they went to meetings uh, with clients, he told them to steal the pens. But anyhow, what we'd like to do in Bubble Trouble is to ask our guests or come up with our own to give us the smoke signals, the things that when you hear them said, you just go, "Uh uh-uh. 
And I know you painted a very optimistic picture about the creator economy. And, you know, we've had other podcasts uh, where we've gone into the sheer absolute torrent of talent that's unleashed on the world. And there's no way to parse it all out. But what are the couple of things that you hear executives or, or artists that come into your office say that just make you go and cringe and that you kind of know that's not a path to success or, or that your average listener should be a little wary of when they hear that pitch to them as a road to riches? Right, right. It's, it, well, it's not so much. It's actually, I would just maybe reframe that a little bit to are being part of conversations where artists are getting pitched on things, pitched for things. Obviously, we're a big three talent agency, so almost all the artists we represent have or have established some degree of success, right? And or else they're probably not coming to us. They're going to go to a much smaller agency to try to develop the beginnings of their career. But the biggest one is when I hear about, and this could come from an artist, but it's more likely to come from someone who's trying to sell something to an artist, is I can build your audience tenfold by virtue of you using this strategy, product, platform, whatever. In other words, the idea that we can manufacture virality. When I hear anybody say something that suggests that we can manufacture virality, I immediately go, that's like, that's too good to be true. Except if you're in a lab in Wuhan, then you maybe you can. <laughs> that's a different kind of virality. That's a good, look, the overarching shift that's taken place that's causing all of this disruption is the shift from the control of the dissemination of the content in which our talent participates from a small number of executives at right. specific companies to the consumer themselves, right? You can't manufacture audience. You can grow your audience by being smart about and using data and using, you know, your influence to promulgate your, your creativity or your art form in whatever area that might be. But you can't just create an audience. You can't just invent an audience. And that's the biggest one I hear now because of the value of these audiences are getting so much greater there now is this sort of cottage industry of, I would say, charlatan may be too strong of a word, but, yeah. um, you know, snake oil salespeople who are trying to promote the idea that I have a technology or I have a methodology to explode your audience. Right. And that sort of notion that someone can algorithmically make you a star or has the magic formula to turn you into a sensation overnight, you're saying... In all your experience, that never works. N not only doesn't it work, but even the influencers and artists who have these massive audiences, most of them will tell you when you sit across the table from them, or if you sit, if you just if you look them in the eye, most of them will tell you, "I don't really know how this happened." I mean, I would urge you to watch a new reality program that, and there's a little bit of a commercial for one of my clients, but it's really very revealing. Uh, there's this family called the D'Amelios. They're the biggest personalities on TikTok, which is now the fastest is the fastest growing platform. One billion, one billion users. One billion users across the family, across platforms. They've now developed this re reality show for TV, but it's not what you think. It's not a Kardashian's type of reality show. They are really being extremely introspective about how this happened to them and what the implications are for their lives. And I think it's very informative for people to listen to, to understand that there was this young woman sitting in her house in Connecticut who posted a couple of dance videos on a new platform that people didn't know before. And a year and a half later, she had 100 million plus followers, da danced on the halftime show of the Super Bowl, was invited to the Grammys, and her whole family has a reality television show on uh, TV in, in the US. And when you watch that show, you can feel what that means to someone mm. and how that occurs. 
it, it, within a family and how it changes the dynamic and how they're dealing with that mentally, socially, emotionally. It's really fascinating. Is there a second smoke signal, something else that you hear when you're, these creators come in and, 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 and tell you, ask you, why aren't I a bigger hit? What is the thing that really makes mm. you cringe and, and think, geez, this is not going to end well? Again, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm an eternal optimist. Clearly. And I am an optimist in general, but I also... Your, your mission is your client's commission. <laughs> well, but no, my, actually, it's funny you say it, but that's the mission of the agents who I work with, and they're my partners and they're my colleagues. My mission is to provide them with the evidence through data to back up the arguments and to maximize the opportunities and for our clients. So, you know, what I see is, and I, I again, I'm old enough, I'm 62 years old, so I've been through lots of bubbles and lots of bursts. I've been through probably four or five different cycles as it relates specifically to the media entertainment world. And I feel like we're just now, I, and I know, Will, you've written about this, you know, for what is it last year for the first time that the dollars flowing through streaming music exceeded the highest amount that was paid for recorded music before. And we're kind of in the first three innings, to use a baseball analogy, we're in the first three innings of that game right now, I think, as it relates to primarily video content, audio content, but primarily video content. Joe, I don't know how to unpack all that you've told us because you are an eternal optimist. At the same time, you've laid out many reasons why we could be seeing an absolute explosion and some real changes in the way in which content is discovered, brought to people's attention, and ultimately rewarded. And it feels like mm -hmm. down the road, in a few years' time, we could come back and be looking at a very different content landscape. So I want to thank you for your insights, your experience, and on behalf of Will, say this has been a terrific session of Bubble Trouble. Thanks for being our fifth guest. Appreciation, Joe. And we'll Thank look you. forward to the hyper competition we're, we're clearly seeing in the talent world. Thank you. And great to meet you, Richard. And I'll go wherever Will Page goes. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we'd encourage you to follow the podcast wherever you listen. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom and Jesse Baker at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.